This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. He joined me to closely examine Prime Minister Morrison's supposedly safe plan for opening up Australia. Richard talks of the 70% and 80% vaccination targets for eligible adults, and he delves into and explains the Doherty Institute's modelling, what its underlying assumptions are, and how it's being utilised by our politicians. As always, Richard debunks the political spin and gets right to the heart of the matter. And to get us off on a good foot, I'm really excited to be speaking once again with Dr. Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Oh, I jumped in there, sorry. (laughs) No, no, that's okay. I was just going to add what we're, we're going to be covering, which is, you know, I won't give too much away, but we are going to be talking about Scott Morrison's supposed safe plan for opening up, which He's uh, used and deployed in terms of messaging quite a lot. And, uh, I, I mean, people would be forgiven for not reading this safe plan, which really looks like the vaccine rollout document but changed. And um, we're going to talk about not just the plan but obviously the modelling that has informed this plan and how the Prime Minister and the government is actually using this modelling to justify their plan and obviously the politicking that's going on around this and what is happening underneath the surface, I guess you could say, and it's something which you have been writing about in the Saturday paper and obviously talking about and tweeting about, which has been fantastic, but you've also put out a report which is up on the Australia Institute website called Doherty Modelling, Assumptions of TTIQ and Their Impact on Phase 2 Modelling. Don't freak out anyone who hears that title, because <laughs> <laughs> as we know, Richard, you have a, a way with words. So uh, we'll jump straight into it, but maybe we could set the scene for where we're at at the moment in terms of the reality of the COVID situation here in Australia and how that differs from the reality, assumed reality that the Doherty modelling is actually using. Yeah, no, happy to. And yes, while the paper you read out is a bit of a mouthful, we've we've just put up a new paper of eight things you probably don't know about the Doherty modelling. And you know, how's that for a much better title? That's a good one. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So so let's be clear. Like all modelling, whether it's an economic model or a climate model or an epidemiological model, all, all models are based on assumptions. The fact that the model has assumptions isn't a criticism of a model; it's a description of a model. Models are all about assumptions. The the issue is that the assumptions in the model uh, are useful for the reality that we're trying to understand. So, you know, in year 12 physics, you know, back in the day, you know, we kind of figured out how far a cannonball would fire if you knew how fast it left the cannon and the angle the cannon was at. And, you know, Newtonian physics has got a whole bunch of really simple assumptions, including just ignore air friction, you know, and for calculating how far a cannonball will go, you can ignore air friction if you want. But if you wanted to figure out how fast a plane will fly, 
and you ignored air friction, then that would be a really dumb assumption to make. Mm. So it's okay to have simplifying assumptions in models. That's what a model is. Uh, but when the simplifying assumptions don't map with important parts of reality, then that's when bad things happen. So that's that's the sort of background uh, sort of, you know, defence of, of the good folk at Doherty who've worked hard and done the best they could with scant available information. Now, what happened was... Back in June, we had the the people at Doherty modelling to help us understand how vaccinations would affect the spread of the virus and how different rates of vaccination would give us more comfort about other restrictions that we could open up. So that's all fine. We're back in June. And back in June, you know, we didn't have an enormous outbreak raging across New South Wales. So some of the assumptions that the Doherty modelling are based on is the assumption, for example, that our contact tracing system would never be overwhelmed. That that made sense in June because, you know, we'd, we'd seen what happened in Melbourne with 700 cases and, and contact tracing held up pretty good at 700 cases. So Doherty thought, all right, contact tracing works even when there's a big outbreak. Well, we've got 1,500 a day in New South Wales now, and contact tracing has been, you know, basically been decimated in Sydney. It doesn't work at the moment. Um, So there's key assumptions like that that were reasonably made by Doherty. It's not a conspiracy, but the consequence of using models that make assumptions like that in a world that looks radically different, well, the consequences are really quite significant. Absolutely, they are. And there are a number of medical and scientific assumptions in this modelling as well, which I thought I'd just highlight before we jump into what you've been writing about. And some of that is relating to the severity of the Delta variant. And at the time that they were modelling, there wasn't as much data or robust data as they had hoped for in terms of trying to figure out, you know, how fast is it transmitting, how severe is it in different age groups, who would be affected, and obviously vaccination plays a role in that. Uh, And so they ended up saying that they would really model it based on the alpha variant or most of the assumptions based on the alpha variant because it had better data, obviously with some Delta-related inputs. But in the actual report itself, it does actually make that clear. And they were also, obviously, when we're talking about um, August last year and the the Melbourne outbreak, the second wave, that was what they would call the wild strain or the original strain of coronavirus. And that's how well our test and tracing system stacked up with that particular variant. However, we've since had, as you would well be aware, Richard, the Alpha variant, which hailed from the UK, and now obviously the Delta variant, which originated overseas in India, and we saw how that affected the people of India, and obviously Australia closing its borders to our own citizens uh, and permanent residents. So that was one thing I thought was particularly interesting that hasn't been really drawn out. And then the other thing, Richard, which was really striking to me, was the fact that they had done a thought experiment around children to see should children be included in their plans. And so, you know, we need to be aware that this plan actually relates to 16 and over, so the adult eligible population being vaccinated. So it's not the total population of Australia. And the reason why it seems that they said that was because they felt that vaccinating parents would protect children enough. So it was kind of a secondary protection that children would receive by not being vaccinated themselves. 
So I just wanted to point that out and also to get your input and views when you were reading this modelling and looking at some of those assumptions, whether there were things that stuck out to you, because those were the things that instantly stuck out to me. Oh, look, absolutely. And again, you know, you can't blame the modellers back in June Mm. for using the best available information they had back in June. And we now know a lot more about Delta than they did then. Uh, And a lot of what we've learned about Delta is is not great news. Um, And look, just to be crystal clear, vaccinations are a really good idea. If you're not vaccinated, please go and get vaccinated. If you've got friends or family who aren't, encourage them to. It's good for them. It's good for you. It's good for the community. Please don't interpret anything that I'm saying as in any way encouraging uh, concerns or doubts about the effectiveness of vaccines. They work for individuals. They absolutely do. But what we're learning about Delta is that perhaps even though the vaccination will stop or not stop, will significantly lower the chance that you'll get really sick or go to hospital or die, and that's a great reason to get vaccinated, uh, there's pretty alarming um, new data suggesting that the odds of people who are vaccinated passing it on to other people uh, are a lot higher than than with alpha and that we'd previously thought. So, again, do vaccinations help keep us safe? You bet they do. Um, but they're probably not as good at stopping us spreading the virus to other people as we thought we did. So, again, that's, that's information that wasn't available to the people that were doing the Doherty modelling back in June. Now that we are beginning to suspect this, we probably need to be far more cautious uh, about open up with these, and I'm going to use the word carefully here, but arbitrary 70 and 80% thresholds. Um, you know, we've kind of, we, we based those 70 and 80% thresholds uh, on some information available in June. Well, when the information changes, the threshold should change. Absolutely. And that's something that Sharon Lewin, who heads up the Doherty Institute, said is that models are there to be updated. And when we have new information, we change the assumptions in the modelling so that the modelling is the most accurate it can possibly be. And obviously, you know, modelling is about predicting an outcome. And there are so many variables, as we'll soon hear from you, Richard. One thing we should also mention, because you've just mentioned their vaccination and transmission and and these arbitrary targets, and we do hear about them quite a lot. (laughs) Anyone who tunes into any press conference, but certainly the New South Wales one and the Victorian one and the federal press conferences, will hear the leaders trying to give people a lot of hope to say, we need to get vaccinated, go out, get vaccinated, which, yes, we absolutely should and ASAP book it in now. And and I guess trying to give us hope that, well, we'll give you more freedoms. That's the kind of language that's been used by Gladys Berejiklian and the Premier of New South Wales. If we meet this 70% of the eligible adult population, so that's actually 56% of the total population, and if we meet this other threshold, this final threshold that's been modelled, which is 80% of the adult population, which is actually 64% of the total population. So we've heard epidemiologists say, well, actually, you know, that's a great kind of interim target, but we really should be looking at total population targets, not just adult population targets. Now that we've got children eligible for Pfizer 12 years and over, and that's also something the Doherty didn't know about in June. The TGA hadn't approved it for that age cohort. So I wondered about that 
Richard, in terms of the these arbitrary numbers that we have received and whether that explains some of the outcomes in this modelling? Because you do draw out the fact that the modelling is predicting very high case numbers, even at 70 and then 80% of the adult population. So if the 80% is actually really 64% of the total population, I guess it's probably less surprising that we would have a concerning outcome. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, well, let's go back to the key point. You know, the CEO of the Doherty Institute says, oh, you know, modelling's, you know, obviously we should update it, obviously we should update it. Great, okay. (laughs) When when was the last time you heard the New South Wales Premier or the Prime Minister say, oh, of course, the 70 to 80%, that could be updated any day now. We could be changing that Mm. when we get more updated data and new modelling. So we've got the modeller making explicit that, look, this is a dynamic changing process and when the information changes the model changes and we've got a prime minister and a new south wales premier who's trying to cover up her failure to suppress the virus in her own state saying no we made a decision 70 percent it's it's all on and 80 percent no worries off we go so there's a hundred there's a complete disconnect between (laughs) what the modeler is telling us which is you know basically the bleeding obvious and and what what our political leaders are doing with that modeling and and that's what's really the problem here is not that some modeling was done and that wasn't perfect but that you know, and I, I have written this, like never in Australian history has, uh, has, has a prime minister based such a big decision on one piece of modelling. And, you know, you've got the model of themselves saying, well, you'd want to update it. And you've got the prime minister saying, I'm not for turning. So big picture, we should be quite alarmed about that. You know that that, that that we've taken a subtle piece of modelling based on 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 clear limit assumptions of limitations, and we're turning it into this kind of doctrinal truth about a national plan. It's it's bizarre. Um, as for you know whether or not kids should be involved, well, can kids get the virus? Yep. Can they get sick from it? Yep. Can they spread it? Yep. So. <laughs> There's, mm. there's no epidemiological reason to either set targets that ignore them as a percentage of the population or to uh, suggest that, it, oh, it's okay to let it rip through them. And, you know, people, in my experience, people tune out when you say too many percents of people. So let, let me make it simple. If we open up when 80% of adults are vaccinated, there'll be 9.2 million unvaccinated Australians. 9.2 million people won't be vaccinated when we hit our target of 80% adult vaccination. 9.2 million. Why? Well, because there's 5.1 million kids under 16 and, and 4.1 million adults comprise the 20% unvaccinated population. So forget percents for a while. Let's just mm. talk about people. There'll be 9.2 million unvaccinated people when we hit this magic number of 80%. And keep in mind, you know, you got Scott and Gladys talking about 70%. Even if you get to 80%, you got 9.2 million humans in Australia unvaccinated. We should be very, very cautious about opening up that 9.2 million people to a rapidly spreading deadly disease. Absolutely. And uh, this is something which 
really hasn't been pointed out enough is that these people won't have had any protection. And sure, they might get some protection by the fact that others are vaccinated, but not enough at 9.2 million Australian human beings. And so, yes, it, it is absolutely concerning and shocking. Richard, you said there about being doctrinal, and it seems that these politicians, particularly Berejiklian and Morrison, are being very rigid in their messaging, but also their plan. Clearly, they've put forward this plan, or the Prime Minister has. The states originally have accepted it at National Cabinet. Some of them have walked away, had to think about it, reflected on things and realised, actually, it's not hunky-dory. This isn't exactly what we thought it was originally, and that they are quite concerned. We've heard the ACT Chief Minister, your own uh, Chief Minister up there, Richard in Canberra, expressing very, very clearly his concerns about children and wanting to extend the vaccination rollout timeline further out to actually include them in it so that we don't lift restrictions too soon and not give children this opportunity to be vaccinated. We've also even heard Tasmania, the Liberal government down there, say that they want 90% of the total population down there vaccinated, which is what epidemiologists like Mary Louise McLaws have been advocating for. So we are seeing, although they're definitely not the loudest voices and they're not getting this kind of media platform that the Prime Minister and Gladys Berejiklian are, uh, even Daniel Andrews reinforcing some of New South Wales messaging, I wonder what you think about that political situation that we're seeing ourselves in here and the fact that I guess Scott Morrison is is leveraging it to his advantage by wedging the other states and making it look like he is being the critic of this response to COVID that, oh, all these states are, are wanting to keep their numbers down to zero and you know, we need to get out of the cave, as some of the language he's been using. Uh, all of this seems to deflect responsibility away from him onto the states and, and cause, I guess, quite convenient conflict. Oh, absolutely. And, and causing conflict is, of course, his goal, because if, if other people are fighting, then he can distance himself from his uh, it's not a race comment, you know. So, uh, look, but let, me, let me just sort of say that the national plan you know, it was agreed to by all the premiers and it's a publicly available document. It's very short, actually. It's kind it's one of one page, page, yeah. one page long. So the national plan is, if you read it, it's very broad, it's very vague. You can drive a bus through any particular part of it and you can it's, see it's that It's literally that's, dot points that's for anyone right. wondering. Yeah, well, dot points and, and, and very vague sort of language around mm. the dot points. So you can see how eight state premiers and the prime minister could agree to it because they didn't really agree to anything concrete. Now, the prime minister is very keen to move the debate on from his it's not a race to the race is over. I've called it early and it's it's time to come out of the cave and all these Labor premiers want to live in the cave forever so don't don't remember the fact that I was slow to start the race. Please focus on the fact that I was quick to call the race finished. Now that's that's the strategy that's playing out, and, and Gladys Berejiklian's into that 100% because, you know, she couldn't control the virus anyway, so she might as well say, well, Band-Aid had to come off anyway. You know, I'm 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 going to be stern, Mum, but you know, we'll all be better for it in the end. So, so Scott Morrison. And Gladys Berejiklian, who only three weeks ago were in a furious public fight with each other about who was more incompetent, 
uh, with, with Gladys suggesting the Prime Minister was incompetent for being so slow with the vaccine rollout and and, and Morrison being uh, attacking the, the, the Premier for doing such a bad job of lockdowns, they've moved on from that conflict. Now, they now have a new united position, and their new united position is it's a very wonderfully neoliberal one. Oh, it's actually all up to us as individuals to get ourselves vaccinated, and if we get ourselves vaccinated and we follow the rules and we don't have any underlying health concerns because we made good decisions about our own health, it's very it's wonderfully neoliberal. It's all kind of up to us now. But, of course, you know, that's not what the Doherty modelling says. The Doherty modelling says that we would be absolutely bonkers to start letting the virus rip below 70 or even 80% vaccination. And in New South Wales today, they're at 40% double vaccination, 40%, so half of that target. And, you know, the, the Doherty modelling assumes that the contact tracing system won't fall apart when it has. It assumes literally, you know, maybe we should talk about this, yeah. the Doherty modelling literally assumes there are no state borders so this idea that all the states will open up to each other, you know, when we hit some magical number, well, that's based on a scenario where where there were no state borders. There's no the word borders, state borders aren't mentioned in the Doherty modelling, and the Doherty modelling assumed there'd be a sort of small, steady, even sort of outbreak across all the states. There's nothing in the Doherty modelling that helps the Tasmanian Premier decide whether he should open up his state, which has got zero cases, to New South Wales that's getting, you know, a 1,000 unlinked cases a day. There's literally nothing in the Doherty modelling to help the state premiers make that big decision because the Doherty modelling never anticipated this scenario. Yes, yes, and obviously federalism and, and the need for state premiers to do things differently given we have such different border arrangements right now. Clearly, we're not borderless. We're pretty much the opposite at the moment in Australia. Richard, before you just uh, mentioned neoliberalism, so I just wanted to close off that part of the chat. And you mentioned this messaging that uh, certainly Gladys Berejiklian has been hammering home very, very often and quite starkly. We've heard her say, as you said, if you get vaccinated, you stay at home and follow the rules. And, you know, if you keep yourself well and you haven't got an underlying health condition because as we hear at the press conferences when people who have died are read out a number of them are supposedly said to have had a health condition well I just wanted to point out something I saw on Twitter which you probably saw as well which was from the Grattan and said that 40 percent of Australians have an underlying health condition so the idea that we could possibly want to victim blame people who have died of coronavirus at press conferences is also something particularly neoliberal, I would say, bringing it back to supposed individual choices. And, and we have seen a lot of people, including Karen Phelps, come out, the former AMA um, president and former parliamentarian, say that this is just morally and ethically reprehensible. So I just wanted to ask you, I guess, about that and the messaging that's coming out from states like New South Wales about deaths and ICU and, um, you know, deaths are horrible, but this kind of language coming from different state premiers, what effect do you think that might have in a political situation? Do you think that it potentially is giving people a, a false sense of security? 
Oh, it's designed to give them a false sense of security. It's it's basically saying, look, if you're a if if you're a right thinking, fair minded community person who's got themselves vaccinated, why shouldn't you be able to go and visit your family for Christmas? Because these these other people, and you know, we, we should be sympathetic for their death, but these other unvaccinated people who probably broke some of the rules and, you know, had a few underlying conditions, uh, why should they get in the way of you and your freedom? This is not an accident. This is Australia mm-hmm. writ large. We blame women for being sexually assaulted. You know, you know she'd been drinking. We blame the unemployed for their unemployment. Oh, you know that they didn't have a lot of skills. This is Australia. We blame victims, uh, and now we're doing it with with COVID. And and just to be clear. Well, who cares if someone had an underlying condition? They're dead. And they died because of a disease, and, and a disease that spread because the Premier couldn't control an outbreak. And sure, we can't keep it out forever, but we could have kept it out for longer until we'd vaccinated the person who's now dead. So, yeah, let's let's not gloss over what's going on here. It's a very, very clever deliberate strategy. Now, whether it works or not at large numbers, I don't know. At the moment, people are thinking, yeah, I wouldn't mind my freedoms and I've been vaccinated and, you know, I I go for a walk each day, my health's all right. You know, who cares if the people are dying? Well, sorry, I, of course I care if people have underlying conditions, but who cares? That doesn't minimise the fact that they died of a disease for which they weren't vaccinated against. And wouldn't have died, uh, very unlikely to have died and would have lived a healthy life. Many people have underlying health conditions that are managed throughout their life until great elderly ages. So, yeah, it's shocking. It's it's just shocking, but it's not an accident. No, no. And, And so to bring this back into what we were moving towards before, and it certainly is a a good link, I think. Um, Dr Jeanette Young, the Queensland Chief Health Officer, was asked how many deaths she would be comfortable with in terms of when they open up and and all of this thing and get to certain vaccination targets. And she was obviously quite upset and angry about the question, given she is a doctor and is committed to, you know, stopping all preventable deaths from happening, just whatever their cause. But it did highlight to me one of the points that I think is missing in this debate, and it's a little bit disingenuous to say about the states that have zero COVID, oh, well, they just want to be zero forever. I don't think most of the states, certainly not all of them, um, and maybe only Western Australia at this point, want to have zero COVID for a very long time. Most of them understand that the whole point of suppressing cases right now to the lowest level possible, which was agreed to in the plan, is so that we can safely allow people to be vaccinated in an environment that means they're not going to be infected before they get the opportunity to be vaccinated. Because as we've already mentioned there, Richard, This was a race. The Prime Minister didn't treat it like it was one. And so now we're in this position where many, many younger Australians haven't been given the opportunity until recently to even book a vaccine. And at this point, there are many who can't access it yet. So I just thought that was particularly interesting. And maybe it's something that 
is being used as a bit of a weapon against the states to have this very black and white left and right view of, oh, you just want zero COVID forever, when really I think there's more nuance to the position of these states, which is we want to let everyone get vaccinated first and then we'll follow the plan. Of course, absolutely. And and so let me give you a different metaphor. Imagine mm. the tide imagine the tide is coming in and uh, you see it coming in and you walk away from the tide at a, at a, at a calm, safe pace. That's, that's not complicated. But if a tidal wave occurs or a storm surge occurs, then the, the tide can rise very quickly and a lot of people and a lot of property can, can be harmed. So, yes, it's true that we can't keep COVID out of Western Australia forever. That's absolutely true. But what we can do is try and keep it out for long enough that we've got 80, 90, maybe 95% of people vaccinated, certainly everyone who wants to be vaccinated. And then when we open up to COVID, people will still get sick and die. But the people getting sick and dying won't be people who wish they'd been vaccinated and weren't given the opportunity. So, yeah, the Prime Minister is, you know, as as is his incredible skill, he's the Prime Minister and I'm not. He's good at this version of his job. He's asking everybody to choose between two options that are designed to herd people his way. Do you want to stay in a cave forever or do you want to open up and be free? And, and of course, what most people would like to do is to open up and be free and be safe. And, please, if anyone wants to, I really encourage them to go to the Doherty Modelling Read the executive summary if you read nothing else. It's short. And do a word search. Have a look for the word safe. You won't find it in there. (laughs) There's nothing in there that says that this plan is safe. They haven't given medical advice that it's safe. They've given some advice about likely spread of a disease with different vaccination rates and different assumptions. They haven't said we should do it. They haven't said it's safe. They've just said, yep, here are the things that are going to happen. And what most people don't realise is that one of the things they say is going to happen is if we open up at 80% adult population, then we'll get to around 40,000 cases a day of COVID within six months of opening up, 40,000 cases a day. And a lot of those cases will go to hospital and sadly a lot of them will die as well. That's the plan. That's the safe plan that the Prime Minister says. We have to choose between 40,000 cases a day or living in a cave like Perth. Well, mm. you, can see, you can see why the Premier of Western Australia says, well, if you force me to make that choice, I think I'll take the cave. But he doesn't want to stay in a cave forever. He wants to make sure, like the ACT Premier, uh, Chief Minister Andrew Barr has said again and again and again, he just wants to make sure that as many people as possible can be vaccinated before the virus crashes onto our shores. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And Australia has essentially squandered that opportunity, or certainly in New South Wales, as we've discussed here. Richard, you mentioned there these kind of underlying assumptions in the modelling, which we've talked about some of them, but there are a couple that I'd love to explore in a bit more detail with you, given that the 40,000 cases per day of Australians being infected with COVID-19 at a vaccination target of 80% of adults. That is actually the optimistic picture. So some people might have thought, well, that must be, you know, the worst case scenario. That is not actually the case. So there are a couple of points in that eight facts document that you've put out at the Australia Institute that are really key here. And the first one is one you've mentioned 
briefly, which was the states, and this assumption that there would kind of be an even spread of a very low level of cases across the states and that one state or two states wouldn't be having a mass outbreak of cases over 1,000 to 1,500 and Victoria here at 240 to 250 at this point. And then obviously there are other assumptions. One pretty kind of crucial one, which you've pointed out, is the Test, Trace, Isolate and Quarantine System, or TTIQ. So, Richard, I wonder if you could take us through these really key assumptions in terms of the way that the picture is looked at at a a kind of national level, but also the public health measures that are assumed to be in place and the TTIQ system. Yeah, look, it's, it's hard to overstate how heavily the Doherty modelling relies on the effectiveness of our testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine system. And and I confess, and until I first read the Doherty modelling, oh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago now, until I'd first read it, like everyone else, I'd probably massively underestimated just how important and just how good Australia's testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine system had been. So let me give you an example. When the Ruby Princess, the passenger ship early on uh, in the COVID crisis, came into Sydney with hundreds of, with thousands of people on board, hundreds of whom had COVID, and all those hundreds of people literally got off the boat into Sydney onto planes and flew all around the country, there were no vaccines, none. Not a single Australian was vaccinated. We didn't have any defence against COVID at all, none except the ability to find people who had it through testing, figure out who they'd been speaking to through tracing, stick them all in isolation as quick as we could, and then once we figured out who did have it, isolate and quarantine them until we knew they were better. That's it. That's the only reason tens of thousands of people didn't die in Australia last year. Not vaccination, TTIQ, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, is the only reason that 60,000 people might, might go watch the grand final, the AFL grand final in Perth. The only reason that Perth doesn't have any cases at the moment is because TTIQ worked. It took an initial dose of that Ruby Princess and other initial doses that came in through our failed quarantine systems, and we kept suppressing it. And it was no fun, no fun. You you in Melbourne know how lack of fun it was, but it mm. worked. So in the Doherty modelling, the one thing that actually has the most power to suppress the virus is TTIQ. According to Doherty, it's it's more effective than vaccinating 60% of the population. It's the main game. It's the main driver. And one of the assumptions they make in Doherty is that we would never let an outbreak get so big that our testing and tracing system would collapse. Well, guess what? It's already collapsed in New South Wales. They don't even publish the unlinked numbers any when they do their press conferences anymore because they're so big. So the a key sum, assumption in the Doherty modelling is that we have a small outbreak with highly effective testing and tracing in place, and at worst we have partially effective, which is still really quite good, we just don't ever, nothing in Doherty ever anticipates the collapse of the testing and tracing system that we've already seen in New South Wales. And as I said at the beginning, no problem making an assumption, 
in June, they probably thought that was a plausible assumption. But here we are in September relying on modelling done in June based on the assumption that things would never get as bad as they already are in New South Wales. Mm, And partial testing, tracing, isolate and quarantine, uh, I mean, if you look at New South Wales right now, they've essentially almost given up on Sydney uh, and the LGAs of concern and are really focusing their contact tracing on, you know, the key outbreaks in sensitive settings, no doubt in aged care homes and hospitals would be a priority, but also mainly in regional New South Wales where they think they can make the most impact and the most difference at the moment. And there's obviously a lot of concern in regional New South Wales, especially for our First Nations people who are being affected by coronavirus right now. So I wonder when we're looking at the reality versus what is modelled in that paper, um, the optimal versus the partial test, trace and isolate, you know, where are we at? Are we even at a partially effective test, trace and no. isolate in New South Wales? No, 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 absolutely not. So so in the Doherty modelling, they have two scenarios, optimal testing and tracing, and that was based on New South Wales during 2020. And partially effective TTIQ was was modelled on the the darkest days of the biggest outbreak that we'd seen in, you know, 700 cases a day in Victoria. So the Doherty modelling had two scenarios in it, optimal, which is as good as we thought we could get it, and partially effective, which was still pretty good. You know, they're not actually crystal clear about how good, but, you know, during the Melbourne second wave, the TTIQ system held up, didn't collapse. Well, it has collapsed in in New South Wales now. It's collapsed. But there again, and it's going to get worse, right? The case numbers are rising and rising, and the longer that you have unlinked cases floating around in the community, the more unlinked cases you are going to have. So, unfortunately, it's very hard to put the TTIQ genie back in the bottle. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian let it out. The Doherty modelling assumes you'd never let it out. But now we're still using the Doherty modelling to predict what's going to happen in New South Wales. So other states, including Victoria, are desperately hanging on to suppression strategies, even if they can't get it down to zero, they know that they don't want it to get up around 700 or 1,000 cases a day because once it does and it kind of breaks through the TTIQ system, that's when it really starts to rip along. So so even if you can't get it back to zero, you still want to keep it under enough control that your testing and tracing can do what it's done so well, so well in Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere. And the table that you put into this report that you've got and that replicates what the Doherty has got in their modelling shows infections, ward admissions, ICU admissions and deaths in the first 180 days for 70% and 80% adult coverage. So that's still the 9.2 million Australians not vaccinated, both with and without optimal TTIQ, test, trace, isolate and quarantine. So at 80% coverage, if we're going for the most optimistic picture, if you had partial TTIQ, the symptomatic infections in the first 180 days would be 227,702 cases. Ward admissions would be just under 7,000. ICU admissions would be about 1,500 people and deaths would be 761. Now, that was like starting at a a kind of low point of cases in that modelling, wasn't it? And it was also not factoring in Delta to the extent that we know it affects people now. 
But you do see this kind of massive drop if we have optimal TTIQ, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I wondered what you thought of that. It seems like there is a great effect of TTIQ, but it's obviously going to be less effective if our cases get too high. Do you think that's modelled or reflected in the modelling? Yeah, look, it's a really important point. So let's just be crystal clear. In the Doherty modelling, the Doherty, the effectiveness of testing and tracing is not sensitive to whether you've got 100 cases or 1,000. It's not. And that's a major problem. And I think that a lot of people have been confused. I'll, I'll, I'll use the passive voice here. I don't want to put allegations out there. I think a lot of people are confused. They've heard that the Doherty modelling doesn't matter whether you start with a small outbreak or a big outbreak. Um, that's a fair description of the modelling, but it's not a fair description of reality. Um, the model assumes that no matter how many cases there are, the effectiveness of the testing and tracing system never gets worse than it was in Melbourne last year. Right, so, so there's effectively they set a floor and said it couldn't get worse than that, no matter how many cases there are. So when you assume that it can't get worse, no matter how many cases there are, you can't then use that model <laughs> to go and tell the public, oh, it doesn't matter how many cases there are, we think things will be all right. Well, what we've seen in New South Wales is TTIQs already collapsed. And yeah, there's you know there's a lot of data. It's hard to talk about data on radio, but <laughs> what what the Doherty modelling makes clear is if you had to choose between a, a really effective testing and tracing system and a high rate of vaccination, take the testing system. <laughs> it's actually mm. more important. Now, of course, you don't you don't really want to choose between the two. You want both. But the only way, the only way to have both, have lots of vaccination and an effective testing and tracing system, the only way to have the combined power of both is to keep case numbers low enough that you don't overwhelm your traces. So the modelling assumes that the traces can't get overwhelmed, but they can so, and that's why I think, you know, Daniel Andrews is fighting so hard. Even if he can't get it to zero, he knows he's got to try and keep it low enough that he doesn't let the testing system get swamped. And the other states, of course, are actually helping New South Wales with their testing and tracing. The minute they have an outbreak, they're going to have to pull their testing and tracing to help their own citizens. So, yeah, we're not being honest about these. And the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, was, was attacked quite brutally, I thought, for talking about some of the worst-case scenarios in the Dawoody modelling. And apparently it was reckless of her to mention the worst-case scenarios. But, of course, then the, the, the federal government just always quotes the best-case scenarios in the yeah. Dawoody modelling. So why is it reckless for a state premier to talk about the worst-case scenarios in the Doherty modelling, which, by the way, are not the worst-case scenarios that we can imagine. But if it's reckless for her to focus on the worst-case scenarios in the modelling, why is it OK for the, for the federal government to, to focus entirely on the best-case scenarios? 
Oh, absolutely. And in this set of assumptions, and you were talking about vaccination and TTIQ, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, there's also continuous levels of public health and social measures, which is what they term these. So these are things like mask wearing, social distancing, venue capacity restrictions, certain activities in industries operating at um, lower levels. And you point out and, and make a lot clearer, I think, in your report, that even under the most realistic scenarios, the Doherty modelling predicts that stay-at-home orders, aka lockdowns, will still be a regular experience for many up to 46% of the time. And if we go back to the whole point of this modelling, which the question that was posed and that Doherty modelling was meant to answer was, if we wanted to stop relying on lockdowns, how much vaccination and the vaccination level should we be aiming for? But what they essentially have come to us with, correct me if I'm wrong, is that lockdowns will still be a key feature some of the time, whether it's highly localised or whether it's statewide. Oh, absolutely. And again, this is why it's very misleading of the Prime Minister to kind of do his, do you want freedom or do you want cave spiel? Because the Doherty modelling is quite clear that we can and indeed must rely on lockdowns to keep cases low enough that the testing and tracing and other things work. So so this sort of false choice that we're being offered, freedom or caves, just isn't what the Doherty modelling anticipates. And, yes, if we have really high vaccinations and if we have really effective testing and tracing and if we don't start with a major outbreak... And if we're lucky with our borders, our international borders, then, yep, we could avoid a lot of lockdowns. That is absolutely true. But for the Prime Minister to say, once we hit 70 or 80%, lockdowns are over, freedom is here, you know, vote for me, that's just not <laughs> what Doherty's got to say. It's mm. just not. No, and one thing I do want to to bring up with you, uh, and I'd love your input on this given New South Wales' situation, and we just saw the press conference yesterday with ICU physicians coming out to talk about ICU capacity and the, the Premier is talking about surge capacity of about 1,500 extra ICU beds that would be set up and somehow staffed, although, to be honest, the description of how they would staff it with highly specialised people really wasn't very clear. That is a real reality for New South Wales right now for the next month and month to two months because supposedly it's going to peak, although clearly that's also questionable if, if the peak is happening in a week or not. But one thing in the Doherty modelling, which seems to relate back to this current reality for New South Wales, is that it looked at the cumulative effect of symptomatic infections, hospital admissions, ICU admissions, and then deaths over those first 180 days if that threshold of 80% of adults vaccinated is achieved. And looking at that table and breakdown by age group about all those measures was really interesting because it even says that under 16, with those who are unvaccinated, 206 would end up in ICU in the first 180 days, 404 between 16 to 39 years in the first 180 days, 
And we're already seeing three children in ICU right now in New South Wales, and these are, you know, under 10. So I just wondered what your thoughts were, given that our hospital systems presumably are or should be a key component of modelling, given that we do have a limited capacity, even with surge capacity. And I just wondered if the modelling was reflecting or examining that. Uh, look, the modelling, again, was it was put together to help us do kind of two things, uh, to try and avoid lockdowns uh, and to try and not overwhelm our intensive care wards. They were the kind of objectives the Doherty modelling people were given. And what the Doherty modelling says is if you get to 80% vaccination, there's a good chance that you might be able to avoid a lot but not all of the lockdowns and hopefully not overwhelm your intensive care wards, all right? But New South Wales is at 40%. <laughs> It's not, we're not at 80%. Doherty never modelled what would happen if you open up at 40%. And while Gladys has not opened up, like there's still obviously lockdowns in place in, in New South Wales, she never actually locked down as hard as Victoria or the ACT, and she's already starting to open things up when the intensive care wards are already beginning to overflow. And, of course, you know, you heard the Premier, you might have heard the New South Wales Premier yesterday say, oh, if things get too bad, we might have to fly people into state. Yes. Well, yeah. But guess what? So, again, she's assuming that other states won't be in the predicament that she's in. And the only way for them to avoid being in that predicament is to ignore the advice that they should open their borders to New South Wales. So, yeah, look, again, you can't blame the modelling for this. Uh, we've just got a political class that's just taking, it's just cherry-picking the numbers that they want to hear out of a complicated bit of modelling. They're not updating those numbers as the circumstances change. And as a result, I, I fear there's going to be a lot of avoidable deaths. And Richard, you did a PhD in economic modelling, so modelling is your thing. And I know that this is something which would often be included in an economic model would potentially be, um, if we we're looking at the COVID pandemic and outbreaks, we'd be looking at the social and economic costs of deaths, but we'd also be looking at those costs in terms of long-term disability and people who end up catching long COVID. And a lot of people who get a mild illness that's very low in symptoms a decent proportion of those, uh, you know, it's been seen around 10% potentially can get long COVID and have ongoing, long-term, very disabling symptoms. I doubt that that has been included in the modelling because I couldn't find it, but it seems to be something that, you know, you would think that politicians would want to model was not just the impact of deaths, but obviously uh, if people are catching long COVID and, and have a very reduced capacity to engage in society and to work, for example, you know, shouldn't we be modelling? modelling for that? Uh, look, there's a lot of things that we should be considering. Whether we're modelling them or not, we should be considering a whole bunch of things, including who's in the 20% that aren't vaccinated? Mm. You know, like, is this randomly distributed? No, it's no. not. But, and yeah, they'll be going to school, a lot of them. That's right. But let's be crystal clear. There's no economic modelling that says we should do this. Now, that's okay. Like, you know, uh, yes, my PhD's in economic modelling, but 
I spent a lot of time telling people, you know, don't overemphasize what what we can actually can and can't tell you with that modelling. So I'm perfectly fine with politicians making big decisions without commissioning economic modelling. But let's be clear, the politicians usually pretend that they love economic modelling before they, you know, give tax cuts to their friends or stop wage rises for their enemies or, you know, they all point to modelling when they want to. Well, I haven't seen any economic modelling that says, okay, the Perth economy is doing better than the Sydney economy. Perth's locked down in a cave. Sydney's not. You know, Perth should take a dose of what Sydney's got if it wants to help the economy. There is no modelling out there that suggests this. This is all just gut feel. Now, again, that's fine. You know, that's prime ministers can send us off to war without economic modelling. They can try and open up state border restrictions if they want. But, you know, the, the fact is that the, the, the epidemiological modelling we've got isn't well suited to this. And, yeah, there's no economic modelling on the short-term or the long-term costs of COVID. But you can see that the hotels industry is just desperate to open up. And guess what? We're listening to them in New South Wales. Given that we've just been talking about the modelling and how, well, you know, not all political decisions are made on modelling, maybe we could just finish that conversation that we've been having about the the kind of other inputs that are occurring here that we have been discussing, which is really about values and ideology And there are so many kind of social inputs and political inputs into this scenario, which we've been talking about. What do you think might be the way forward, given that the Prime Minister is so successfully deploying this wedging strategy between the states? Clearly, it helps for us to have this conversation on air because then people listening can understand the situation better and identify what's happening politically. But what might be a solution? And, and, you know, should we be following the lead of WA and the ACT Chief Minister and actually, you know, call it out when it's not actually going to suit us and our values and, and who we want to protect Yeah, look, it's hard to make predictions about the virus, let alone the politics of the virus. But I think the Prime Minister and Gladys Berejiklian are playing a ruthlessly effective short-term game. They've both succeeded in shifting the debate away from their failures on vaccination and their failures on lockdowns into a hypothetical conversation about future freedoms. But... It's hard to believe that after New South Wales goes through what Gladys is about to put them through, that after people in Perth and Brisbane and Hobart and even Melbourne see what the Sydney hospital system looks like in the next week to months, it's very hard to imagine Scott Morrison going and trying to win votes in Western Australia saying, you guys should open up. So, yeah, I think it's working in the short term. You know, it's shifted the debate away from his obvious failings into what he thinks is a potential strength. But, you know, reality bites. And, yeah, again, I I don't know. No one knows what's going to happen, except that we know that case numbers are going to continue to rise, intensive care wards are going to get swamped and people are going to die. How do people in other states view that? My hunch is they don't view it as freedom. And mm. that's that's going to be hard for Scott Morrison. Well, you point out something that's very clear here is that there's so much uncertainty, even with modelling, that hedging your bets and, and really staking your claim on one plan and becoming very rigid on it is certainly not going to benefit you in the long term because it's probably, as you said, going to, to bite you. 
So we will see. We'll have to wait and see, won't we, Richard? But thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to us. I've already had messages from people on social media saying how helpful it's been. So I'm very, very grateful for your time and expertise. Well, well not at all. And I'm just about to do at 11 o'clock a webinar with the CEO of the Burnett Institute, who knows far more about epidemiology <laughs> than me. Yes, uh, Brendan Crabb. Brendan Crabb. Yeah. And he, and, he and I are going to do a webinar in... 40 minutes time at the, you know, the Australian Institute website looking at what we call a vaccine plus strategy because we do need to vaccinate but we also need to do a whole bunch of other things and and you know the Prime Minister with his technology not taxes sort of approach to things isn't good at holding two ideas in his head at the same time but for public health we're going to need to do that. Absolutely. Well, Brendan is a really brilliant expert in this area and I have great respect for him. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. Shall do. And um, thanks for having me on. A pleasure, Richard. I've just been speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis. He's the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. And we have been talking about Morrison's safe plan, quote unquote, to open up Australia and what that actually means and the modelling that he's pinned his decisions on. And obviously, politically, how that's travelling, but also what really these assumptions are in the modelling. And I feel very much clearer about things after chatting with Richard and also reading his reports, which you can find on the Australia Institute website, australiainstitute.org.au. It's in the research section. And one of those very easy to read documents is called What the Doherty Modelling Really Tells Us About Opening Up at 80% Vaccination of Adults. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.